KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When Oscar-winning costume designer Ruth E. Carter first saw Chadwick Boseman in his iconic Black Panther suit, she was amazed. But then he spoke up. My mouth was on the floor. I just was like, wow, these superhero suits, they really do transform. But then he said, yeah, but this helmet smashes my nose. I can't breathe and I can't really lift my arm above my elbow. I was like, well, that's got to change. Carter joins us to talk about her book, The Art of Ruth E. Carter, which includes pictures and stories from her dazzling career. A chance encounter with Spike Lee kicked off a long collaborative relationship, starting with school days in 1988, up through Chirac in 2015. Carter also talks about designing the costumes of Wakanda in both Black Panther movies, and why she calls working on a Steven Spielberg production a race to the finish line. But first, we banter. Stick around, it's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So I will just touch base with the usual strike watch. As we are speaking, negotiations have been ongoing between the studios and SAG-AFTRA. I am told that the first session, which was a few days before this conversation, went well, was encouraging. But I think we probably both agree that we've got the Fantastic Four (laughs) studio team, Bob Iger, David Zaslav, Donna Langley, and Ted Sarandos in the room negotiating at the SAG-AFTRA headquarters, which in itself is quite a concession for the royalty of Hollywood. (laughs) Well, as long as Fran Drescher didn't accuse Bob Iger of being Vladimir Putin, then it's probably a good (laughs) sign that the talks are going well. Yeah, that could be it. But uh, the talks are continuing as we speak. We think they want to wrap this up quickly and get everybody back to work. But at this moment, no deal. So let's hope that changes soon. Let me turn to Netflix. I mean, we both know and have talked about many times how the race to get into the streaming wars and, and build subscribers has pretty much screwed all the studios, except Netflix at this point, but even Netflix, according to the Wall Street Journal, is going to participate in this overall raising of prices. And we know that the studios have lost billions trying to win the streaming wars and just struggling to get and keep subscribers. Netflix is supposed to be way ahead of everybody else and is, has way more subscribers than anybody else. And yet, Even Netflix is raising its prices and trying to push people into an ad-supported tier, which is the cheapest, of course. And I find that kind of interesting because, you know, if Netflix is doing so well, what do they need that for? Well, you always need more money. (laughs) And, you know, I think they're seeing what everyone else is seeing, is that streaming is becoming a class system. There's going to be the people who can afford and are willing to pay for the no ad tier, and they're willing to pay more. I mean, Netflix is currently fifteen forty nine for the regular tier of Netflix. They got rid of the basic tier, which was essentially ten bucks, and have now replaced it with this ad tier that is cheaper than that. And they're basically telling their customers that they can only get the cheap version of Netflix if they take ads. And the reason they're doing that is because Netflix and the other services make more money on customers that take ads. Bob Iger at Disney 
said as much. They said that they are raising prices on Disney Plus this next week because they want to push people into the ad tier that is cheaper because they can monetize them better. That is where all of these companies see the future in making more money on their streaming services, and they are all under incredible pressure to be more profitable. Yeah, I think on average, the consumer is facing a 25% increase if they want to keep their ad-free streaming service. And, you know, we're in the middle of this revolution right now, and we all know that the herd has to thin. There are so many streaming services, all of which cost money. And, you know, people like me used to be like, oh, I'm stuck with this cable bill, and I have to take this, and I have to take that. And I used to complain about ESPN, I'm sure you remember. But now... You know, when you add up how much you're paying for the individual streaming services, that is a strain on the pocketbook. So we're not at the end of this yet. The herd will thin and these things are going to have to be bundled and it almost feels like we're backing into TV again. Yeah, I mean, the difference now, obviously, is that instead of complaining about a service that you have to take via your cable bundle, you can just unsubscribe. And I'm sure you do when you see that the price is getting high enough where it's not worth it for you to subscribe anymore. And that's what I think these media companies are foreseeing. And they're saying, okay, in order to maintain these subscribers, let's offer a cheaper tier. Most people do not care enough to want the ad-free tier. They're okay with ads. And then we'll give them a cheaper price and then we'll monetize them that way. It's a natural evolution of the streaming business to kind of create a premium product that people who care about this stuff will actually pay for. And then most people don't and they're fine with ads. Yeah, I think that the broader impact for the business, you know, is that what was coming all along with the expense of these streaming services was that we're going to see fewer movies and TV shows made in the the wonderful golden age of television, too much TV. It's not going to be like that anymore. So, you know, the writers and other talent in Hollywood, they're facing this moment where they've come to a settlement on their grievances in the case of the writers. But at the same time, the business is taking a turn that's not going to help. No, it's not. And, you know, that was already happening pre-strike. And I think the hope here is that the video business will take a trajectory somewhat like the music business, where the bundle of prepackaged albums that was dominant in the music business before streaming went away. The music business went through years of struggle, and then they figured out how to bundle all of recorded music into these streaming services for a subscription price that made sense. And now, year over year, the music industry is growing, 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 and there will be more opportunities for artists. Now, the music business today is not as great for artists as it was in the album era, but it is a business. That, I think, is probably going to happen in the streaming business. These companies need to figure out whether this makes sense. And in the meantime, it's going to be years of struggle, I think. Yeah, I hate to end on that gloomy note, uh, but thanks, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. If you watch a lot of movies, you have almost certainly seen the work of legendary costume designer Ruth E. Carter. Her collaboration with Spike Lee spanned 10 films over two decades. You might remember Lee's look when he played pizza delivery man Mookie in Do the Right Thing. Or perhaps Denzel Washington's swagger as the young Malcolm X turned out in a sky blue zoot suit. Carter became the first African-American to win an Oscar for costume design for her work on Black Panther. And with the sequel, she became the first African-American to win multiple Oscars in any category. She joins us today to talk about her book, The Art of Ruth E. Carter, a collection of photos, illustrations, and stories about just some of the films she's worked on in her storied career. 
I've been doing this show for quite a number of years now, but you are the first costume designer, and I always like to get people in different fields. Wow. Uh, well, I'm happy to be the, your first. Well, a double Academy Award winner and uh, all kinds of firsts. Yeah, we're starting out in a very big way here. <laughs> so I'm glad we have this opportunity and congratulations on getting the book done. I I read that you were working on the uh, Black Panther sequel and thinking, oh, I'll just write a little bit in between. <laughs> It'll be fine. But books are hard, right? Yeah, I didn't realize how hard they were going to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of stream of consciousness with a lot of the stories. I've told them all before several times to people. And then the editor sends the story back and said, can you elaborate a little bit more on this part? Or can we switch this part around? Or, oh, and you're like, wait, the story came back. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I like talking about myself that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Notes, 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 right? Everybody's got an opinion. <laughs> so you were thinking of being an actor and you did theater work in college at Hampton University in Virginia. Mm -hmm. But yeah. at one point, a professor asked you to make the costumes for one of his plays. And I think at first you were not like, that sounds like so much fun. I want to do it. Well, you know, I've been playing around with sewing as a kid. So maybe the reason I said yes was because I found that I enjoyed that. So it was kind of the consolation prize because I wanted to act. It was the Moliere's The Would-Be Gentleman. And there weren't many parts. So I wanted one of them. And so that part of it was disappointing. But when he said, we don't have anyone to do the costumes, and there's a costume shop that nobody's using on the second floor, I thought, <laughs> hmm, that does touch on a part of me that um, I have explored as a kid. So you eventually get to Los Angeles, and you are working on a play here, I think, A Night for Dancing, yeah. if I got that right. <laughs> yes, uh, Otis Salid, uh, A Night for Dancing, and it was a dance performance to the music of Stevie Wonder's uh, Songs to the Key of Life, and mm. it was wonderful. That and sounds great. Yeah, they performed it at Los Angeles Theater Center, and I was working there at the time. And I, you know, stayed after work and watched the performance and thought, you know, they could use a costume designer. And so I approached Otis Salid and asked him if I could, you know, design for the dance troupe. And he said, yes. And, you know, I did many things with him, but that was the one thing that triggered a chance meeting with Spike Lee. Yes, that's what we were working toward, the chance meeting with Spike Lee. And thus it begins, right? You and Spike yeah. work together a lot. And I read in the book, you talked about the first film and, and there, was a, there was a line where you said that you and Spike would walk to a cafe or near uh, 40 acres and a mule and you would sort of work out tensions. But there was one I was, I was a little baffled. You gave an example. It said like who was stealing Nikes from the wardrobe. Was that something you were supposed to answer? <laughs> who was stealing the Nikes? Yeah. I mean, he was like an investigative reporter. I mean, <laughs> These precious Nikes were a big deal to him. Uh, we not only had Nike, we had Adidas, we had all the sneaker brands at that time, product placement. And I was housed in a big warehouse with the costumes. And it was part of the office as well. And But my office was a walkthrough. You know, like people traveled through the costume department to get to other areas. And uh -huh. the security <laughs> wasn't great. And 
lo and behold, like became knowledge to me that someone was taking the, the shoes, you know, but I was innocent. I I, was <laughs> I didn't think about people stealing anything. I thought about, you know, how am I going to get this project designed? Right. And I guess you got acquitted by Spike and worked that out. It's kind of his personality to, you know, like, hey, hey, who was doing all that? Hey, you know, <laughs> kind of his yeah. emphatic way. Yes, he can be emphatic. <laughs> With Spike, you said that on the first movie, you felt like you had a feeling you didn't measure up because Spike is emphatic, as we just said. And yet he asked you back. And I think that for you was like affirmation that you actually did measure up and that you were good at this. Is that stating it right? It is. You know, I always took the position that he doesn't have to hire me again. I didn't want to ever feel like I was automatically going to be asked back. I just kind of felt like I wanted to be the professional that could get other jobs with other directors too. And so I just kind of like, kept myself really at peace in a sense. And when he did call, it was awesome. And it was new beginning. Let me move to Malcolm X. And I'm just going to, I mean, obviously Malcolm X is a great movie and you talk a lot in this book about your design choices and so on. But I was entertained by this thing where you were shooting in Egypt and you have these fedoras that you have to use because they're product placement in yeah. the movie. So they paid. I mean, just tell us what happened with that. I had this um, huge box of fedoras from a New York Cat Company. They did product placement with Malcolm X and gave us all of these uh, stingy brim fedoras. You know, they were hard. You could knock on the side of the hat and, you know, make a sound. That's how hard they were. Um, <laughs> and uh, I had one huge e-container, which is like the size of a large trunk full of these hats. And uh on our days off, I was going to the souk and buying all kinds of souvenirs. And I started buying like rugs and <laughs> yeah. I needed uh, room to pack them. So I decided that I wouldn't return to uh, the States with the hats. And I started to give them out to the drivers. Once I gave a few out, everyone caught on that I was the girl giving out free, you know, men's hats. <laughs> And I walked into the production office where the drivers were all seated outside the uh, production office uh, along the wall, you know, maybe eight or 10 of them waiting for whomever needed to drive to wherever they needed to go. And I looked over and it was kind of like I was being put on blast, as they say, because every single man sitting there was in this gray fedora. (laughs) (laughs) There's a look. So... I am going to jump ahead to Steven Spielberg. I have this idea, you can just tell me if it's right or wrong. I mean, I've interviewed him intermittently, that he's very clear and straight ahead and there's not a lot of, yeah, I mean, you know, that's his reputation. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. He's very clear. And uh, I remember he wanted to know what Sinke would look like on the journey, on the ship's journey back this to... This is uh, Amistad, yes. Mm-hmm. For Amistad. And there was a ship that was exactly the same as the Amistad that was on the Long Beach water uh, there. And we took a boat to a boat to get onto that ship. And then I get the question, what is Sinke wearing on this ship uh, that's 
a scene that's coming up and I panic because, you know, I can't necessarily go back to the wardrobe truck on shore. And I had this postcard that was a depiction of a painting of the real Cinque. And he was wearing this draped uh, white cloth across his chest and, I ran to Stephen and I showed him this painting on this postcard and he just said, ah, oh. <laughs> he's very, he's very clear when he likes it. Anthony Hopkins was coming to set and I went ahead of him and I asked Stephen, you know, what did you want him to wear for this scene? And there was a lot of things happening at the last minute. And he said, I just want him to look adorable. <laughs> and it was a bedroom scene, you know, he's getting ready for bed. So I had him in a long nightshirt and <laughs> the uh, Anthony Hopkins <laughs> comes to set and he says, you look adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like he's so sure. I mean, we were shooting at an antique Ford in Puerto Rico and, uh, you know, I was dressing with my team, you know, hundreds of Africans and loincloths and stuff. And then we had these merchants and they were all on a balcony who were buying the slaves. And I uh, ran to set and I thought I could change something. And Stephen looked at me and said, it's already shot. <laughs> you know, there's like this race to the finish line there. Coming up after the break, Ruth E. Carter talks about one of the most stressful moments of her career. Hint, it involved an awkward recurring issue with Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther costume. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. After two decades of designing iconic costumes for many Spike Lee films, including Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, Ruth E. Carter was offered an unexpected challenge, creating costumes for Marvel's Black Panther movies. Carter's Afrofuturist designs in the Ryan Coogler-directed superhero films would land her two history-making Academy Awards for Best Costume Design. We had Ryan Coogler on the show for, I think, his first or maybe second movie. Mm -hmm. And he was such a lovely young man. And he was on the cusp of getting to be huge. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from your book that he did not lose that loveliness. Not at all. It was refreshing because... You know, coming out of Spike Lee films, 40 Acres and a Mule is a tough introduction to the filmmaking process. So I guess once I walked into there and I, I knew it was Marvel, I was expecting, you know, to put the boxing gloves on and go, you know, <laughs> yeah. into it. 
And I was having trouble opening up the images I stored in a Dropbox. And uh, little did oh, I know. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I read that. That would have yeah. been a good thing to like tell me ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, so you I'm have to get, like panicked. somebody else's laptop, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but Ryan is sitting across from me, just as calm as ever. He's watching me kind of cycle through, you know, panicking over my laptop and trying to multitask and answer questions and. And then he said, you know, I'm really glad you're here. You know, I grew up watching your movies. And I remember going to see Malcolm X with my dad. And it was a Mm -hmm. big family experience in the theater. I sat on my dad's lap. And he says, I remember the costumes as a kid. I remember the costumes. And that really made me feel good. I feel really relaxed after that. And, uh... Nate Moore, who was also in the room, went and got his laptop and, I don't know, put the secret code in. And I was able to sort of share my images from Nate's computer. Yes. I mean, that is uh, an amazing feeling. I would think that this guy, you know, can remember that and so validating, right? Like amazing that he remembered the costumes from Malcolm X when he was a little boy. Yeah, I felt like I had interviewed for the job. Back then. <laughs> yeah. You didn't even know when they first, I, I mean, I wonder know. when they, when they first came to you with this idea of doing a Marvel movie, did you think like, do I want to do this? Like the scope of it is huge, but it's also just an incredibly controlled environment as people know, you know, the way that Marvel movies get made. Well, they had never done a movie like this before. So they had no way of like really dictating like the control that they normally do on other films. So this was building the world of Wakanda. This is more costumes, I think, than they had ever really produced. Um, we believed in the vision that Ryan had for the film and were very much following his lead as far as uh, the aesthetics go. And I think that Marvel really wanted uh, the input of a costume designer that could build a world. And the world is so big that, you know, we need everybody's input. And hundreds of illustrations are submitted and we're all looking at them together. So it's a collaborative effort. I mean, the head of Marvel's on the same Zoom as I am and VFX and assistants and director. And they're excited and they really want to see you come to light as an artist. I remember having a show and tell with the pattern that we were creating for the Panther suit. And I built one limb, uh, the arm of the panther suit and with the musculature and everything on a stand. And we covered it with the black fabric of the panther suit. But we also printed the surface uh, Okavango triangle in different sizes, you know, and uh, we brought it to the meeting in the middle of the conference table. We had four arms covered in a black, you know, uh, duvetine. And so they came in and everyone was excited about the show and tell. So, you know, we're really loving filmmaking and we're loving the the process of everyone's part. So I just embrace that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of your work has been about the Black experience and trying to lift perceptions and realities. And that's where you specialize almost, I would say. Thank you. And there was a big drama about doing Black Panther just on the corporate level, you know, the Ike Perlmutter, the head of Marvel at that time, didn't want to do it. And that's when I think Kevin Feige won that battle and uh, 
didn't have to report to Ike Perlmutter anymore and reported directly, I think, to Bob Iger, or maybe to Alan Horn and then Bob Iger, but uh, really Bob Iger, I would think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when you were doing this film in this very different setting, I'm assuming you understood and all felt, you know, the importance of that film, Black Panther, to the Black community. I did. Uh, I in it, I think it went bigger and broader than understanding the importance of the Black Panther to the Black community. I think it was also understanding the African diaspora, the Black American diaspora, and that we have a history that didn't start with slavery, that Africa isn't one monolithic place, that there were several tribes that, you know, make up this fictitious place called Wakanda and that we could explore the history of Africa as well as the history of ourselves, the lost tribe, as it's called in the film, in a way that would shed light to everyone, to the world, about our position here and also about what things would be like in a fantasy world, in this Afro-future world, if they were not colonized, if we were not colonized, what would life in Africa be like? So that became more of the story uh, to build than actually the Black Panther, because Black Panther was known in the comics. And as I reviewed the comics, you get these little boxes and you see these pictures of Wakanda and you see there's a Maasai warrior there. There's a Dora Milaje. There's all of these uh, small little images of this melting pot of Africa. But it also opened up an opportunity for me to explore it on a bigger scale and really take the concept and bring a bigger part of that concept to life. Yes, that was a very big deal. There was something you said in the book that I wondered about. You talk at one point about how preparation is really important, but I was trying to think preparation, it sounded like so early, like before the cameras are rolling, that you must be prepared. And I just wanted you to expand on that a bit. Prepared in what way? Well, you know, you rarely see me on set for very long. Once the camera rolls on a costume, I'm off to the office again to work towards the other things that are coming up in the future. And so a lot of that gets started in our prep time where you really do have to think, what if this costume doesn't work? What else can we do? What other kind of ideas should we develop to a point? And so I'm always juggling that because once the camera's, you know, rolling, you don't have a lot of time to play around with ideas or develop ideas. And sometimes the best ideas are the worst ideas. So you have to pivot. And that pivot time really does rely on how prepared you were in the case where that might happen. Yes. Is there a moment that you remember as the biggest panic from your career? (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, The Panther uh, suit, every time Chadwick wore it, he would blow the pants. (laughs) Like the seat of the pants, I think? He would blow the seat of the pants. We had to actually have a special cutter come in from the Boston Ballet who could put the gussets in so that he would have the freedom of movement that we needed. And also the thinness of the fabric I chose. I wanted to be able to see like the vibranium muscles through the fabric 
And it was a little thin. So that was called our beauty suit from that day on. And then we reprinted another suit to make it a tough suit with the gussets. Uh, yeah, I think they said that Chadwick, it took two people to get him into the Black Panther costume. And yeah. he was in this costume and he's like, I can barely breathe through my nose and I can't move my arms very well. Yeah. Well, that was the first suit. Mm -hmm. And I think it was because they they had to make it really fast. It was the Panther was added to Captain America Civil War kind of at the last minute. So they made it really fast. Once I got it, it needed to have a few tweaks to the costume. But him putting that costume on in my office during prep was majestic. It was incredible. He was stretching and moving, making his karate stances and things. And I, my mouth was on the floor. I just was like, wow, this is something these superhero suits, they really do transform. But then he said, yeah, but this helmet smashes my nose. I can't breathe and I can't really lift my arm above my elbow. So I was like, well, that's got to change. Right. It's a very bittersweet memory now, I guess. Such beautiful memories, though, of him. Well, what an amazing career. Let me do this. Ruth E. Carter is a two-time Academy Award-winning costume designer. Her book, The Art of Ruth E. Carter, is available now. Thank you so much for telling us all these great stories. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.